I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part two of Clear Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, please take a minute to go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to make it possible. Now get your copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream and open it to Act 2, Scene 1, and we'll begin. So we've already met two or three groups of characters at this point. We've met the royals, Theseus and Hippolyta. We've met some lesser lords and ladies, sometimes referred to as the lovers, Lysander and Hermia and Demetrius and Helena. And we've also met what are referred to as the mechanicals, who are these lower class characters who want to put on a play for the royal wedding. But when Act 2 of this play begins, it's as though a totally new play begins. And in most productions, you'll see a massive transformation of the set at this point, because we're going from Athens, from the city, into, at the very least, the woods, and maybe into another realm entirely, this fairy realm. So what's the deal with these fairies? I think a lot of this has been colored by basically Victorian notions of what fairies are, which is a sort of cutesy, very elegant idea of fairies. But the fairies in this play come from a much longer tradition than that. So yes, England at this time was very Christian. They had just been sort of re-Protestantized by Queen Elizabeth. But at this time, there remained a very, very strong pre-Christian folklore tradition that this play draws on constantly. And that tradition comes to the British Isles from all over the place. First, it started there. It comes from the native Celtic peoples. You get some more of that from the Roman myths, which in turn were adapted from the Greek myths. And that comes over with the Roman invasion around 50 BC. And then there's a whole bunch of Germanic traditions that come over with the Anglo-Saxon migrations, which is starting around 400 AD. And there are even some old French traditions that come over in the Norman invasion in 1066. So they're coming from all across Europe. And one theory on this fairy tradition in England is that it was actually religious. That basically you had all these pagan nature deities that just had to become plain old magical creatures once Christianity took over because they couldn't be religious anymore. It was sort of a way to keep those traditions around just in non-religious ways. Similar to how most Easter and Christmas traditions are really just transformations of pagan rituals. I hate to break this to you, but trees and rabbits have nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus. And pretty soon, Christianity was working really hard to actively stamp out these competing traditions. So some people regarded these fairies as demons or ghosts of the dead, and that places them almost directly in opposition to Christian ideas of angels. So regardless, these fairies have a few important characteristics. One is that they're mostly pranksters and mischief makers, though sometimes their influence is actually much more malicious than that. They'll sometimes kidnap people, as in what's called the changeling tradition, which we'll get to a little later. There were some specific places associated with them, especially ones that were aligned closely with nature or that were aligned closely with the dead. And there was this tradition of fairy paths in England, which were these kind of straight line paths between major locations. And humans were sort of wise to avoid those paths because that's where all the supernatural stuff went down. There were some times of year when they were unusually strong or unusually weak, usually on pagan or Christian holidays. So not so many fairies on Christmas, lots of fairies on, say, Midsummer. And they were predominantly creatures of the night rather than creatures of the day. There were some you wanted to have around or at least didn't mind having around. In particular, these household fairies that would do things for you while you slept, sort of Shoemaker and the Elves style. And there were some that you emphatically did not want around. And these are the ones who cast spells and the ones you had to sort of wear charms against. They would often disguise themselves to trick you or they would give you things that appeared to be valuable. And then when you looked at them again, they would turn out to be garbage. But the belief was that a whole kingdom of fairy existed parallel to our own, and that sometimes these lines would blur, especially in, say, a forest at night. So in this play, you see these fairyland inhabitants coming into our world, and then humans entering into that world. 
Also at this time, a big part of Queen Elizabeth's iconography put her in direct opposition to this fairy tradition, but at the same time it also let her appropriate it for her own purposes. So her strong Christianity and her chastity, the idea of the Virgin Queen, is really contrasted with the pagan and the fertility roots behind these fairy traditions. So we'll see a speech actually later in this scene where she makes a disguised appearance, and in that appearance she's defeating the pagan love god Cupid. It's another reason, by the way, why the moon is such a strong presence in this play, because it symbolizes female chastity and along with that, the queen. By the way, she's presented in a very similar way in Edmund Spencer's big epic poem, The Fairy Queen, which is written around the same time as this play, which also incorporates a lot of those old traditions into a new Christian way of looking at the queen. So in the end, like her, Shakespeare can kind of have his cake and eat it too. He gets to pull from these awesome ancient fairy traditions known to everyone around, and they have this dark magic and this very strong sexual side, and he also gets to pay tribute to this powerful virgin queen whose cult is kind of sucking up these old traditions. And ultimately, she's the most important person in the land to get on your side. So back to the fairies. The first fairies we see aren't the king and queen, you know, like we met Theseus and Hippolyta first in the play, but they're assistant fairies. In particular, this one called Robin Goodfellow, also known as Puck, and then an anonymous fairy who works for the queen. So Robin, or Puck, says, How now, spirit? Whither wander you? So evidently they're meeting up on stage, and this other fairy is going off somewhere when Robin stops her. So how now is an informal rhyming expression that just means what's up or how's it going, or what are you doing? and see that he calls the fairy spirit rather than fairy. And then whither wander you? Where are you wandering to? And when the fairy answers, listen to the sound of this language. Over hill, over dale, through a bush, through a briar, over park, over pale, through a flood, through a fire, I do wander everywhere, swifter than the moon's sphere. So you can hear those repetitive structures over, over, thorough, thorough. Thorough, by the way, is just a two-syllable version of through. You can see that it has this ABAB rhyme, Dale, Briar, Pale, Fire, but you can also see how short these lines are. They're six syllables each, which is much less than the usual ten. And then those last two lines have a new rhyme scheme. Believe it or not, everywhere in sphere actually used to rhyme, and they're also slightly longer. They're seven syllables instead of six. You can see also that it isn't iambic, which is da-da. It's closer to what we call trochaic, which is da-da, over, thorough, I do, swifter. The closest regular meter is what's called trochaic tetrameter, but even that isn't quite right because it should have eight syllables. So it's a little weird and specific to this play, and it's especially specific to the supernatural characters. You'll see true trochaic tetrameter, eight syllables in all, almost exclusively in supernatural situations. So the witches in Macbeth use it, the goddesses who appear in The Tempest use it, and it's mostly designed to sound different from the usual speech. It sounds more driving because of the ways the syllables are accented. But immediately, regardless of costumes, just from the sounds of the language, we know these are not like the humans we've met. They don't speak in prose and they don't speak in the same verse. Okay, so what is that fairy actually saying? Where have you been wandering to? Well, I've been wandering over hill, over dale. Dale is just another name for valley. Through bush and also briar. Briar is sort of prickly thorn bushes. Over park and also pale. A pale is like a fenced in or enclosed land, especially for hunting. Through flood, through fire. Flood has a different meaning now from what it used to mean. It used to mean water, or more specifically, the ocean. So this fairy's been wandering through water and fire. And to sum it up, I do wander everywhere. Could have just said that at the beginning. But after Robin asked, where do you wander to? The cue is wander. So the fairy says, I wander everywhere. Swifter than the moon's sphere. And in original texts, you'll often see this spelled moonis with an E instead of that apostrophe to make it two syllables to make the rhythm work. And the fairy isn't swifter than the moon. The fairy's swifter than the moon's sphere. Because in this old idea of astronomy, the moon and many of the other planets were embedded into these crystal spheres that surrounded the Earth. So what's moving that fast is the moon, but also the sphere in which it is stuck. 
So now we're definitely into that A-A-B-B rhyme because you'll see in the next lines what the fairy says it's doing. And I serve the fairy queen to do her orbs upon the green. Oh, so not just wandering around for the fairy's own enjoyment. This is a job, serving the fairy queen, which is the first mention we've seen of her. And what's the job? To do her orbs. Do means to water, as with do. And then orbs is a reference to something you'll see a lot in this play, this idea of fairy rings or fairy circles, which is this naturally occurring phenomenon you may have seen in your backyard where mushrooms will grow in circles. So it almost looks like somebody's planted them there. And this was originally blamed on fairies. So this fairy's job is to water those mushrooms in a circle. And the fairy goes on. The cowslip's tall, her pensioners be. Cowslips are these yellow flowers. And pensioners are like attendants or bodyguards to a royal person. So it's as though the flowers work for her too. In their gold coats, spots you see. So they're yellow flowers. But this fairy is imagining them like royal attendants wearing gold coats. And what are those spots? Those be rubies, fairy favors. Favors are like gifts or tokens from the queen. So they're not just spots, they're rubies. And you hear that double F sound of fairy favors? Well, it's going to continue in the next line. In those freckles live their savers. Savers are good smells. So it's saying that those rubies are the source of the beautiful smell of the cowslips. So the fairy says, I must go seek some dewdrops here and hang a pearl in every cowslip's ear. So right now the fairy is going from plant to plant, picking the dew from the plants, which look like little pearls, and then it's going to use those pearls as earrings for the ears of the cowslips. It's a beautiful image. One thing you will notice, by the way, is that suddenly the meter's gotten regular. It's gone back to iambic pentameter. Because one of the drawbacks of this supernatural rhythm is that it sounds pretty sing-songy, and it's hard to do an entire play that way, or an entire part of a play that way. Iambic pentameter, remember, is designed to sound like natural rhythms in English. So the fairy's very busy and says, Farewell, thou lob of spirits. I'll be gone. What's a lob? It's like a yokel or a rustic, sort of like those mechanicals we just saw, which might indicate something about either the behavior of Robin, of Puck, or just the dress, that there's something kind of down market about this particular fairy. But before the fairy leaves, it says, Our queen and all our elves come here anon. Oh, this is interesting. So elves, not in the sort of Lord of the Rings sense, it's kind of synonymous with fairies, although there's some sense that elves is actually maybe a little more evil than fairies. I don't know, you'll see them pretty much interchangeably. And the queen and these fairies are coming here anon, soon, very shortly. So this sets a clock ticking in the scene. We're going to see the queen of the fairies soon, cool. And Robin has something to add to that. He says, the king doth keep his revels here tonight. Oh, so not only is the queen coming, the king is too. He's keeping his revels. He's holding his celebrations or entertainments here tonight. Because remember, night is when the fairies come out to dance. And he says, Take heed the queen come not within his sight, for Oberon is passing fell and wrath, because that she, as her attendant, hath a lovely boy stolen from an Indian king. She never had so sweet a changeling. He says, Take heed. In other words, be careful. Make sure that the queen doesn't come within his sight. There's that eyes and sight image again. It's important that he not see her and she not see him. Why? Because Oberon is passing fell and wrath. Passing means extremely, and then fell is like cruel or terrible. And we have the word wrath, but not usually as an adjective. Here it means wrathful, like angry and vengeful. Well, that sounds serious. Why? Because that she, as her attendant, hath a lovely boy stolen from an Indian king. So she's picked up an attendant, and it's a boy. And listen to the rhythm of it. A lovely boy stolen from an Indian king. Not a lovely boy stolen from an Indian king. It really stresses that word stolen. And why did she steal him? You find out in the next line. She never had so sweet a changeling. And there was this strong tradition in England in particular, but all across Europe, of the changeling, which comes from the word exchange, like trade. 
it's a human baby that's stolen by fairies that's switched with a lookalike fairy. So basically the fairies steal the baby and then they replace it with another fairy that's been made to look exactly like the baby. All you labyrinth nerds, this is where that plot comes from. What's a little odd is that the word changeling usually refers to the fairy that's been switched out, the fake, whereas here it refers to the baby, the real thing. He goes on, and jealous Oberon would have the child knight of his train to trace the forests wild. So Oberon is jealous that she gets this, and he would have the child. Would here means wants to or wishes to have the child as knight of his train. Train is like his entourage or his retinue to trace the forests wild. Trace means to explore or travel across, almost like you're tracing it on a map. They're going to go across the wild forests together. But there's a problem. But she perforce withholds the loved boy, crowns him with flowers, and makes him all her joy. Perforce means by force. She's withholding this boy. In other words, she's keeping it for herself. And notice how a few lines earlier, it's the lovely boy, and now it's the loved boy. So before it was just an intrinsic characteristic, and now it's that he is beloved. And she crowns him with flowers, which as we'll see later in the play is kind of what she does, and makes him all her joy. I like all those stressed monosyllables at the end and makes him all her joy. You really get a sense of how strong that love is. Almost like a child with a doll. And so here's the fallout. And now they never meet in grove or green, by fountain clear or spangled starlight sheen, but they do square, that all their elves for fear creep into acorn cups and hide them there. And now they, in other words, the king and the queen, never meet. Not literally they never meet, but they never meet but. In other words, they never meet without. So before we can get there, they never meet in grove or green. Grove is a wooded area and green is an open area. Though you have that cool alliteration of grove and green. By fountain clear, fountain being like a spring, a natural fountain. Or spangled starlight sheen. Sheen is shining or radiance. And spangled is like adorned, but I guess the closest thing I can give you is something like bedazzled or glitterized. It's a description of the shine of the starlight under which they meet. And you get those cool S sounds, spangled starlight, and even a little bit in sheen. And then in the next line, square. So they never meet in any of these places without squaring, which means squaring off or arguing. And it's so bad that all their elves, in other words, all their fairies, for fear, creep into acorn cups. Have you ever found the top of an acorn, which is like a perfect little cup? Well, this is how small these fairies are. They can climb into these acorn cups and hide them there. And the stress on that word creep really brings this long speech to an end. It makes it feel final. So that's helpful for the fairy to learn, but really it's exposition for us. We know why they're arguing now. They're arguing over this Indian boy. But the fairy doesn't want to talk about that. The fairy has another suspicion. Either I mistake your shape and making quite, or else you are that shrewd and knavish sprite called Robin Goodfellow. Looks like this guy has a reputation. So either I mistake your shape and making, making being like appearance and bodily form, quite, in other words, completely or totally, or else you are that shrewd and knavish sprite. Shrewd meaning cunning, and knavish meaning something worse, like rascally. Sprite is any kind of supernatural being. It's exactly like that word spirit. They're related. So now we're learning some characteristics of this fairy. He's not one of those nice Victorian fairies. He's shrewd and knavish. And what's his name? Robin Goodfellow. Sort of an odd name. And the audience of this time would immediately have known who this guy was because they had been talking about him in their own homes since they were kids. This is one of several names that's given to this very famous creature of British Isles mythology, especially Ireland and Wales. The other one you'll hear in this play is Puck. Now, Puck was often sort of a shape-shifting goblin or demon, definitely a troublemaker, kind of evil, often grotesque. And Puck could sometimes refer not to a specific one, but to a whole class of goblins. You would speak about a Puck. 
Robin Goodfellow, on the other hand, tends to be one of those sort of helpful fairies. This is the one that would help around the house, be kind of like benevolently mischievous, not hurt anybody. And Shakespeare really makes them synonymous. But it's always funny to me when I see a production, and Puck is another one of those regular-looking fairies with pink wings and stuff. To me, my ideal Puck is maybe someone like Danny DeVito. There's a goblin-y side. There's mischief and a little malice. Definitely not physically pretty. This is a fairy with a reputation around town. And that's the reputation this fairy is going to lay out. Are not you he that frights the maidens of the villagery, skim milk, and sometimes labor in the quern, and bootless make the breathless huswife churn, and sometimes make the drink to bear no barm, mislead night wanderers, laughing at their harm? So here's a whole list of Puck's pranks. So are not you he, aren't you the one that frights the maidens of the villagery? Frights like frightens. Maidens are young women, but especially young virgins of the villagery. Villagery can either refer to the villages, like the local villages, or maybe the people of those villages. What else does Puck do? Skim milk. This is because when you originally get milk out of the cow, it separates and the cream rises up to the top. So Puck is skimming off that cream, maybe to eat it himself. And sometimes labor in the quern. Quern is like a hand grinder for grains or spices. So maybe laboring to help, but maybe laboring to slow it down or hurt it. And bootless make the breathless huswife churn. Bootless doesn't mean not wearing boots. It means uselessly or fruitlessly. Huswife, in other words, like housewife. And this person is trying to churn butter, but Puck has made it useless. In other words, the butter isn't working. Maybe because he skimmed the milk. He took all the cream out of it. So there was nothing to turn into butter. And the poor housewife is trying so hard that she becomes breathless. And sometimes make the drink to bear no barm. Barm is like the frothy head on top of an ale or a beer. For some reason, Puck is really into skimming things off of other things. I don't know. Weird job. And here's a really important one, mislead night wanderers, laughing at their harm. And this is literally mislead, like lead them the wrong way. So people are out wandering at night, and Puck leads them astray. This is actually something that Robin Goodfellow in particular was known for. And then he laughs at their harm. Not their physical harm, but the fact that they got lost. This is something that he's going to specifically do later in the play, so don't say you weren't warned. Those that hobgoblin call you and sweet Puck, you do their work and they shall have good luck. So those people that call you Hobgoblin, and also Sweet Puck, which is the first time we've seen that name officially mentioned. We know that word Hobgoblin now, but actually it comes from this character. It's short for Robin. Robin Rob Hob. So it's a goblin named Robin. Robin Goblin would sound too ridiculous. So if people actually call you these names, well then you do their work, like their household work, and they shall have good luck. So it's possible to get on this guy's good side. And the fairy asks, are not you he... So there's this moment of suspense, and actually there's two syllables missing from this line, so it might even be sort of a cue to pause. And finally he says, Thou speaks to right, like you said correctly. I am that merry wanderer of the night. Merry like joking. And then that word wanderer we've just seen, the night wanderers? Well, he's the wanderer of the night that the fairy was talking about. And it was nice to have all these qualities mentioned, but he has a few more he'd like to list. He says, I jest to Oberon and make him smile when I a fat and bean-fed horse beguile, neighing in likeness of a filly foal. So I jest, in other words, I joke, which is like a king's personal gesture, is another way to see what he does for the king. You could actually dress him as a jester if you wanted to. That'd be kind of awesome. So I jest to Oberon, which is the name of the king of the fairies, and make him smile. When? When I a fat and bean-fed horse beguile. I love that line, bean-fed horse, which seems to imply this may not be the best smelling of horses. So he beguiles this horse. In other words, tricks it or fools it. You hear all those B sounds also, bean-fed and beguile, which really makes this language juicier and more entertaining. And how does he trick that horse? Neighing in likeness of a filly foal. A filly foal is a young female horse. So you have this fat old male horse, and then Puck neighs in likeness. In other words, just like the sound of a young female horse. So he gets this male horse all excited, and then it turns out to be nothing, and then Oberon laughs at that. And what else does he do? He says, 
and sometime lurk I in a gossip's bowl in very likeness of a roasted crab, and when she drinks against her lips I bob, and on her withered dewlap pour the ale. So sometimes he lurks, he sort of hangs out in the bowl of a gossip. Ale, by the way, was drank out of bowls, not cups. And a gossip is like an old woman who sits around gossiping. And what likeness is he in now? In very likeness, just exactly like a roasted crab. Not the shellfish, by the way, that would be gross. A crab apple, which you would put into your ale in the winter. And when she drinks, against her lips I bob, which used to rhyme with crab, it's hard to explain. And on her withered dewlap pour the ale. Dewlap is like that loose neck skin that hangs down. So he bobs against her lips and pours all the ale out onto her neck. But that phrase withered dewlap is kind of great to say. And we're still in that same scene. He says, sometime for three foot stool mistaketh me. So this is either that same old gossip woman or another woman. And a three foot stool, I understand, is like a three legged stool. She mistakes him for that. But before she can sit down, he says, then slip I from her bum, down topples she, and Taylor cries and falls into a cough. And then the whole choir hold their hips and laugh and waxen in their mirth and knees and swear a merrier hour was never wasted there. So he slips out from under her butt. She topples down on the ground and cries, Taylor. This is pretty hard to explain. Some people think that Taylor was this an expression you used when you fell backwards for some reason. I have no idea what this has to do with tailoring, but that lower class people would just kind of yell it out. Another expression I've heard that's kind of interesting is that this line should read, and rails or cries, instead of Taylor, rails or. It's a stretch. I sort of like the non sequitur of yelling out Taylor whenever you're falling backwards. So she falls down, she yells it out, and she falls into a cough. And then the whole choir, not a literal singing choir, but the whole assembled group or company of other gossips around the fire, they hold their hips and laugh, almost like holding your stomach because you're laughing so hard, and waxen in their mirth. Waxen means to increase. It's the same thing the moon does when it's getting bigger. So they increase in their mirth, their joking or their merrymaking, and knees and swear. Knees is short for sneeze, but it's much funnier sounding. And what do they swear? That a merrier hour was never wasted there. Wasted is just another way to say past or spent. So we've never had a better time than when that lady fell down on her butt. See, by the way, the last few lines, they all start with and. It really gives these lines a sense of acceleration. And this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. This fairy is very proud of his work. So now we know a lot about this character. But an important thing is happening. He says, but room fairy, here comes Oberon. Room means make room. Here comes Oberon, the king of the fairies. And this was a name these audiences might have known. He was kind of a mythological fairy lord. He probably comes from French myths, which is why you have that kind of Frenchish name, Oberon. And right on time, who else is here? The fairy says, and here my mistress. Here's the queen, the person I work for. Would that he were gone. Would meaning I wish that he were gone. Why? Because they're going to fight. And here's the big entrance. Oberon comes in one door, and Titania, the queen of the fairies, comes in the other door. And one casting that's actually been very popular in the last few decades is to double cast Theseus and Hippolyta with Oberon and Titania. After all, they're never on stage together. They have somewhat similar roles in the play. They're kind of like shadow versions of the human rulers. It's kind of cool. I think it can make it kind of confusing occasionally because you're watching the play and all of a sudden these characters you've met already come in dressed in totally different costumes. But there was a lot of double casting in Shakespeare's theater. There would have had to have been. So that's one the productions will do a lot, mostly to save on actors. And they size each other up and Oberon says, Ill met by moonlight, proud Titania. Ill met is sort of a pun on well met, which is what you'd say when you were happy to meet someone. It's good to meet you. Or even you'd say it to a friend because it isn't meet for the first time. It's good to meet up with you. And the pun here is the opposite of well is ill, like it's bad to meet you, by moonlight, proud Titania. There's a lot packed into there. She's proud. She's too proud to give him what he wants. 
and then her name is Titania, which seems like a name that Shakespeare made up for her. The irony is that in the same year he writes a play called Romeo and Juliet, where the fairies have another queen named Queen Mab. There's this long speech by Mercutio where he describes all the mischievous things that she does in the middle of the night, though really those things are a lot like what Puck does in the previous speech, going around annoying people. So he calls her proud Titania, and she says, what, jealous Oberon? So if she's proud, he's jealous, which is also a way that Puck described him. And she turns to her retinue and says, fairies, skip hence, i.e. bounce out of here. One thing you'll notice has changed from the earlier part of the scene. They're not rhyming anymore. And why are they skipping out of here? Because I have forsworn his bed and company. Forsworn means sworn off or renounced. So not only am I not hanging around with him and his company, I'm not in his bed. We're not sleeping together. So she and her fairies start to walk off. And Oberon says, Tarry, rash wanton. Tarry means stay where you are, but it's a very strong way to say it. And the stress is on that first syllable. And this time he calls her rash, which means hasty or impetuous. But he has an even worse noun for her, wanton. Not like the Chinese food. It means someone who is uncontrollable or indiscriminate or irresponsible, and especially sexually irresponsible. He's really laying into her. And then he says, am not I thy lord? So who is he to tell her to stop? Well, aren't I your lord, husband, but also ruler? Not only her ruler as the king of the fairies, but at this time, husbands had total control over their wives legally. They were their rulers. They were their lords. And when he says, I'm not I thy lord, Titania says, then I must be thy lady. So if you're my lord, I have to be your lady. But she has a defense. But I know when thou hast stolen away from fairyland, and in the shape of Corin sat all day playing on pipes of corn, and versing love to amorous Phyllida. So, oh, I'm your lady now? I know when you've stolen away, when you've snuck away from fairyland, their sort of parallel universe, and in the shape of Corin sat all day. And there's a whole genre of poetry, I think pretty bad poetry, called pastoral poetry, which is all about how great life is for shepherds, even though if you've been an actual shepherd, you know, not a great life. And Corin was sort of the typical name for a love-struck shepherd who was always singing songs to the girl he loved. So Oberon takes on Corin's shape, and he sits all day playing on pipes of corn. Corn here can refer to any grain, specifically the stalks that you use to make a pipe out of or a flute, probably especially oat stalks, which work really well when you dry them out. But the nice thing about corn is it sounds a lot like Corin, so there's a cool parallel parallelism from line to line. So he's playing on these pipes and versing love, which is a cool verb form of putting into verse. He's putting his love into verse to amorous Phyllida. So in that same pastoral poetry style, Phyllida was sort of the typical name for the beautiful shepherdess that Corin falls in love with. And she's amorous, so she loves him back. I guess he's using these songs as a way to get into humans' pants. And this is fairly typical fairy behavior. They're going around sexing up the populace in disguise. And she's got another proof. She says, Why art thou here, come from the farthest steep of India, but that forsooth the bouncing Amazon, your buskined mistress and your warrior love, to Theseus must be wedded, and you come to give their bed joy and prosperity. So what other reason do you have to be here, come from the farthest steep of India? Some people will say step. S-T-E-P, which could mean distance, the farthest distance of India. Steep might also mean a mountainside. It may also be related to the word step, S-T-E-P-P-E, but evidently he was off in India, on the other side of the world. So what reason do you have to be here but that, except for the fact that forsooth, which means in truth, truly, the bouncing Amazon. I love that phrase, the bouncing Amazon. You can just see her bouncing. But what it means is something like strapping. And who is that Amazon? Well, it's Hippolyta, your buskined mistress. Buskined means wearing these tall hunting boots, like the Amazons did. So she's his buskined mistress and his warrior love. Oh, evidently there's a past there. So the reason he's there is that she's going to be wedded to Theseus, 
and you come to give their bed joy and prosperity. Prosperity means good fortune. It might also refer to future children, but that it's his job to bless their marriage bed. So she immediately goes to the cheating argument, but he comes back at her and says, How canst thou thus for shame, Titania, glance at my credit with Hippolyta, knowing I know thy love to Theseus? So shame on you. How can you glance at my credit? Glance at here isn't just look. It's more like look down on or criticize or snipe at. My credit with Hippolyta. Credit being like standing or reputation or relationship. Knowing I know thy love to Theseus. Oh, if he's in love with Hippolyta, she's also messed around with Theseus. And he knows the full history. He says, Didst thou not lead him through the glimmering night from Perigona, whom he ravished, and make him with fair Aegles break his faith with Ariadne and Antiopa? Yeah, didn't you lead him through the night, because night is where they hang out, from Perigona? And whereas Hercules had twelve labors, Theseus had six labors. It's an early adventure of his in mythology. And Perigona is the daughter of a man that Theseus killed on those adventures. And she later bore his first child. Why? Because he ravished her. Which is a way to say seized. It can also mean raped. But evidently she led him away from her after that happened, and made him with fair Aegles break his faith. Aegles was a woman that he had left Ariadne for. And what does break his faith mean? Break his vow of love. Evidently Theseus has been around. And who else did he break his vow with? Famously Ariadne, who's the daughter of King Minos. If you know Theseus, you probably know him from the story of the labyrinth and the minotaur. So he's being sent into this death trap, basically. But Ariadne gives him this thread that helps him defeat the labyrinth and the minotaur. And he promised to take her with him to thank her for it. But instead he just leaves her. And who else did he break his faith with? Antiopa, which is another mistress of Theseus. Possibly another Amazon. He had a thing for Amazons, apparently. But what we learn from this is that it's been Titania's job to take him from woman to woman and escape with him. But after this long list of accusations, all she can say is, these are the forgeries of jealousy. This is the third time he's been called jealous, by the way. But forgeries as in lies or things that were made up. And she doesn't want to hear that anymore. She goes on to the crux of the matter here, which is, And never since the middle summer's spring met we on hill, in dale, forest, or mead, by paved fountain, or by rushy brook, or in the beached margin of the sea, to dance our ringlets to the whistling wind, but with thy brawls thou hast disturbed our sport. This actually sounds a lot like that fairy's journey from the beginning of this scene. And you see that same never but structure from before. It's not that they never meet. It's that they never meet in any of these places without his brawls disturbing their sport. And how long has this been going on? Since the middle summer's spring, which is a great phrase. The summer has a spring. Here it just means the beginning of midsummer, because midsummer is a period around the summer solstice in late June, but it extends at least a week before. So never since the beginning of the midsummer period, it might even refer to May. Time is very different for fairies, apparently. Met we on hill, in dale, again, which means valley, forest or mead. Mead is another way to say meadow. By paved fountain. Fountain is a natural spring that's been paved with pebbles. Or by rushy brook. Rushy means that it has rushes or reeds along the brook. Or in the beached margent of the sea. Margent is related to that word margin, so it means the coast or the border. I love that adjective beached, as in having a beach. And what are they doing in all those places? To dance our ringlets to the whistling wind. Ringlets are circular dances that the fairies are supposed to do, and they're doing these dances to the whistling wind. There's a cool alliteration of whistling wind. It's like an offering they have to make to the wind. It needs their dances. So we can't go anywhere without your brawls. These are quarrels, but especially noisy ones. It's as though he's following them around, yelling at them wherever they go. He has disturbed their sport. Sport is recreation or fun times, not like they're playing fairy sports. And what's happened because of that brawling? Therefore the winds, piping to us in vain, as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs, which falling in the land hath every pelting river made so proud 
that they have overborne their continents. Oh, we have real consequences here. The winds piping, sort of like that word whistling, to us in vain. So the wind is making this music by whistling or piping to the fairies, but they're not dancing back because Oberon keeps interrupting them, and the winds are not happy about this. So as in revenge, as if in revenge, they have sucked up from the sea, and you can hear those hard S sounds. What are they sucking up? Contagious fogs. Contagious has that sense of infectious, but also harmful. The air in a fog was supposed to be really bad for you because it came from a wet place. And these fogs are falling in the land. And what are they doing? They're making every pelting river. Pelting means petty or insignificant river, every tiny little nothing river. It's making them so proud, not literally proud of themselves, but puffed up, swollen with water, that they have overborne their continents. Overborne means overflowed or overwhelmed. And continents, not like Africa and Asia, but their edges. It's what contains the water. So the wind is bringing all this fog into the land, and then it's raining down until the rivers overflow. And because of those floods, what happens? The ox hath therefore stretched his yoke in vain. The plowman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. So the ox has stretched his yoke in vain. Stretched his yoke means pulled as hard as he can. This is how they plow the field. So the ox did all this plowing, but then all this rain comes down, and it drowns all the seeds. The plowman lost his sweat. So this is the guy who steers the plow that the ox pulls. He's lost his sweat. In other words, he's done all that sweating to plow the field for nothing. And the green corn, why is it green? Well, because it's young or unripe, hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. This is something that happens if you have too much rain in the spring. You can get mildew or rot. So this young corn has rotted air, in other words, before his youth attained a beard. So before this young corn could get a beard, which is the corn silk, it rotted on the stalk. And it's not just them. The fold stands empty in the drowned field, and crows are fatted with the murrain flock. The fold is the pen where they keep the sheep, but there's no sheep in it. It's empty in the drowned field. In other words, the field is so rain-soaked that it's drowned. It's a cool adjective. Well, why is that fold empty? Because crows are fatted. Crows being sort of the scavenger birds. They're fatted. They're made fat because of all the eating of the murrain flock. Murrain or murrain is any disease that kills sheep and other livestock. And maybe it's the wet weather that made them so susceptible to these infections, especially the sort of fungal infections. So the sheep all got sick and died, and now the crows have eaten them. Now we're going to hear more about the drowned field. She says, The nine men's morris is filled up with mud, and the quaint mazes in the wanton green, for lack of tread, are indistinguishable. What's the nine men's morris? It's like an old board game that you could play giant-sized outside on your lawn. They would sort of cut a big board into the lawn, but it's been filled up with mud, so now you can't see it anymore. You can't play your nine men's morris. This is a true tragedy. Between the sheep and the board game problems, I don't know what we're going to do. And the quaint mazes. Quaint at this time means something very different than it means to us. It means intricate. And mazes aren't literal mazes. They're more like tracks or paths in the green. In other words, in that grass or open green space. And there's that word wanton again. Remember, it means uncontrollable. Here it just means that they're growing wildly, presumably because of all the rain. So you can't see the tracks anymore. For lack of tread, you know, because people aren't walking on them anymore, are indistinguishable. You can't pick them out from the rest of the land. And if you don't know where the paths are, you can't get anywhere. But it gets even worse. The human mortals want their winter here. Want means lack. This is a little confusing. After all, this is midsummer, right? What does this have to do with winter? But the upshot of this is that no night is now with him or Carol blessed. A carol can be any joyful song, but especially a song of praise, usually a religious song. And no night is now blessed with that, either because that winter is lacking or because it's raining all the time. And just like with the winds, there's a problem when you don't do those blessings. Therefore the moon, the governess of floods, pale in her anger, washes all the air that rheumatic diseases do abound. So the moon hasn't received her carols or hymns. Remember, she's a goddess. And what is she? The governess of floods. 
There's that idea that the moon controls the tides. Well, she's pale in her anger, which is almost a contradiction in terms. Usually anger is like red and really worked up. But because she's the moon, she's pale in her anger. And she washes all the air. She makes it even worse. She makes it wet and moist because she's the governess of floods. And just as with the fog, the result of this is that rheumatic diseases do abound. That word rheum is just another way to say mucus or kind of like upper respiratory fluids. So any mucusy or drippy disease like cold and flu, those kind of diseases do abound. In other words, they exist in large amounts. They're everywhere. And here's the kicker. And thorough this distemperature we see, the seasons alter. There's that word thorough again, which is just another way of saying through. Through this distemperature. Distemperature means being put out of temper, disorder, or literally unbalancing. So all of nature has been unbalanced. And because of this, we see the literal seasons changing. Hoary-headed frosts fall in the fresh lap of the crimson rose. And on old Heems's thin and icy crown, an odorous chaplet of sweet summer buds is, as in mockery, set. So hoary means grayish or whitish. So the frosts are imagined almost like old people with gray heads. And these frosts are falling in the fresh lap of the crimson rose. Fresh means young or lovely or blooming. So it's as though the rose is a beautiful young woman and the frosts fall in her lap. And you hear that cool alliteration of hoary-headed and fall and fresh. And also the opposite happens. On old Heems's thin and icy crown, Heems is sort of the personification of winter, like old man winter. Crown isn't literal crown like a king would have, but on his head, thin because he's old and his hair is thinning. And what goes on his head? An odorous chaplet. A chaplet is like a wreath or a garland, and odorous means sweet smelling, of sweet summer buds. Sweet is another way to say it smells sweet. So winter is wearing a crown of young summer flowers, and it's set on his head as in mockery almost as though you're making fun of him, like it's a ridicule or derision. And you've actually seen a lot of these fake crowns in Shakespeare's works. There's a paper crown in Henry VI. Um, Richard II talks about a mockery king of snow. But what's important here is that summer is getting some winter in it and winter is getting some summer in it. So everything's backwards. She goes on to say, the spring, the summer, the childing autumn, angry winter, change their wonted liveries. And the mazed world by their increase now knows not which is which. So spring and summer and childing autumn, childing meaning fertile or fruitful, because that's when you harvest things. Angry winter, they change. In other words, they trade or exchange their wonted liveries, their usual clothes or uniforms. So if it's snowing in the summer, then summer is wearing winter's coat, basically. And it's another image of transformation or topsy-turviness, which is all over this play. And the mazed world, mazed isn't quite like a mazed. It's more like confused, as in someone in a maze, not knowing where to go. By their increase, increase had a different meaning then than it does now. It means produce or crops. It's what they produce. So if you're getting your pumpkins in the spring and your tomatoes in the winter, you don't know what time of year it is. You can't tell which is which. And she wraps up this long catalog of awful things with, and this same progeny of evils comes from our debate, from our dissension. Progeny means result, but literally it means descendants. So these evil things are like their children. And it comes from our debate. In other words, our arguing, our strife. Not like a pleasant political debate. From our dissension. Another way to say like a dispute or a disagreement. And you get those D sounds of debate and dissension. And she wraps it up by saying, we are their parents and original. We're the parents of these evil progeny, of these terrible things that have been happening because of our arguments. And also we are their original. Original means cause, but literally it's the thing that originates something. And it's interesting. She started off blaming this all on him, but by the end she's using the term we. It's because of how we're arguing. And he immediately takes that away from her. He says, do you amend it then? It lies in you. Amend means to cure it or make it better. So you fix it then. It lies in you is like the solution is up to you. This is all on you. 
I have nothing to do with this. You're the one who's being unreasonable. And then he starts to throw charm her way a little bit. Why should Titania cross her Oberon? Cross means to contradict or prevent him from getting what he wants. I do but beg a little changeling boy to be my henchman. I do but beg, I'm only asking for a little changeling boy, you know, that boy who has switched out, to be my henchman. I think now we know that word henchman from like heist movies, but where it originally comes from is meaning someone's like page or attendant. And actually that word hench probably comes from the old English word for horse. So it's probably originally someone who's a groom who takes care of a king's horses. So he just wants this kid to attend on him. But that's all he's asking. It's quite reasonable. But she's not having it at all. Notice how she interrupts his line halfway through. He says to be my henchman and then she ends the line for him. Set your heart at rest. As in don't even think about that. The fairyland buys not the child of me. So even if you gave me all of fairyland, your whole kingdom... That wouldn't buy this child of me, in other words, from me. And then she goes on to explain why she cares so much about this random Indian kid. His mother was a votress of my order, and in the spiced Indian air by night, full often has she gossiped by my side, and sat with me on Neptune's yellow sands, marking the embarked traders on the flood, when we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big-bellied with the wanton wind, which she, with pretty and with swimming gait following, her womb then rich with my young squire, would imitate and sail upon the land to fetch me trifles and return again, as from a voyage rich with merchandise. And you can see that as a huge run-on sentence with all these parentheticals inside it. She really gets carried away by this image and by the poetry of it. So this kid's mother was a votress of my order. A votaress is a woman who takes a vow to devote herself to a particular god or goddess. And an order is any group of religious people who take that vow. So apparently Titania is still worshipped in India. Maybe she has more arms there, I don't know. And in the spiced Indian air. I love that phrase. Remember, at this time, India was still really associated with the spices that it exported across the world, including to England. But I love the idea that the air itself is spiced. So full often, in other words, very often, has she gossiped by my side. They sat together gossiping at night and sat with me on Neptune's yellow sands. Neptune is another name for Poseidon, the god of the sea. So they were sitting on the beach together on the yellow sands, marking the embarked traitors on the flood. And that's something you don't get a ton of in Shakespeare, which is internal rhyme, marking the embarked. People like to compare Shakespeare to a rapper a lot. I don't think it's a great comparison, but this is one of his more rap-like lines because of that internal rhyme going on inside that line. And what does it mean? Marking, in other words, watching or observing, the embarked traders. We have that word embarked today, but bark literally means a boat. So embarked means set out on boats. And traders can either be the guys who are doing the trading or the trade ships themselves. So they're watching these boats sailing off on the flood, in other words, the ocean or the sea. And what have they done? They have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big-bellied with the wanton wind. It's a beautiful image. So it's as though the sails are getting pregnant. Remember, the fairies are really associated with fertility. So the sails are growing big-bellied with the wanton wind. And wanton, again, means uncontrolled or passionate especially in a sexual sense. So it's as though the wind is impregnating the sails when it blows them forward. It's kind of an incredible image. You also get that fun alliteration with big-bellied and wanton wind. And just like the sails, with pretty and with swimming gait. Gait is a way of walking, but I like that he compares it to swimming. So she's like one of the boats. And she's following them, her womb then rich with my young squire. Rich meaning full or filled with, almost like a treasure chest full of gold. And a squire can be a young boy or it can be a literal servant. So like them, she's imitating those sails and she's sailing upon the land, pregnant, to fetch me trifles and return again. Trifles are like little tokens or toys that she's going off to get for her goddess friend. And she's returning as from a voyage, rich with merchandise. So she's like one of those trade ships going off, bringing its spices and coming back with gold. 
and notice that other sense of rich. So her womb is rich with the boy, and she's returning rich with merchandise, with those toys for her. It's an incredible set of images. But bad news, but she, being mortal, of that boy did die. And for her sake do I rear up her boy, and for her sake I will not part with him. So unfortunately she was mortal, unlike Titania, and she died of that boy, in other words, from giving birth to him. And for her sake do I rear up her boy, in other words, I'm raising him up, because she's not alive to take care of him. And for her sake, Titania's not going to part with him. She's not going to give up the boy that easily. And I really like that repetition of, and for her sake, and for her sake. You get that sense of accumulation and building up, and some real righteous indignation. Okay, that's a pretty good answer. And all Oberon can say is, how long within this wood intend you stay? In other words, how long do you intend to remain inside these woods? Because remember, they're traveling all over the world every night, but now they're hanging out here until the wedding. And she says, perchance till after Theseus's wedding day. Perchance meaning perhaps or maybe. It's like, well, I'll think about it. Until after Theseus's wedding day. Notice it isn't Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding day. It's the one she likes. So probably another four days or so. And notice, by the way, after all this not rhyming, they form a rhyming couplet together, stay and day. But she has an olive branch to offer him. If you will patiently dance in our round and see our moonlight revels, go with us. Patiently as in calmly. If you'll dance in our round, which is one of those circle dances, like the ringlets she mentioned above. So if you'll dance with us and see our moonlight revels, revels being celebrations or amusements that they do in the moonlight, well, then you can come along with us. That's fine. But if not, shun me and I will spare your haunts. So shun me means avoid me and I will spare your haunts. I'll avoid the places that you frequent. So we'll be in the same woods, but in different places, because we can't keep arguing like this. And Oberon says, give me that boy and I will go with thee. And notice how that first syllable is stressed. It's like, just give me that boy and I'll be fine to go with you. But no, that isn't the deal. She says, not for thy fairy kingdom. It's that same thing she said before. I wouldn't give it to you if you gave me the whole fairy kingdom. And now she's definitely leaving. She says, fairies away. In other words, let's go away. We shall chide downright if I longer stay. Chide means to fight. So they've been arguing, but like this is going to be an actual fight. Downright means an outright total fight. So if I stay any longer, we're going to really fight. And she leaves, as characters often do, with a rhyming couplet. Rhyme sort of marks that this is the end of my speech and I'm going now. And off she sweeps, followed by all of her fairies. It's a good exit. Always exit on a rhyming couplet if possible. That's my advice for you. And Oberon is pissed. He says, well, go thy way. In other words, go along, get out of here. Thou shalt not from this grove till I torment thee for this injury. Thou shalt not. In other words, you will not go out of this grove, in other words, these woods, until I torment you for this injury. Injury like an insult, but really just the fact that she won't give him what he wants. This is incredibly harsh. So before you leave these woods, I'm going to torment you. It's an incredibly active verb. And he thinks for a second, which I'm sure in fairy time is like thinking for a thousand years. And he has it. He says, my gentle puck, come hither. Come hither means come here. Now remember, Puck works for Oberon, and maybe he's been hanging out in the background this whole scene. And why does he want Puck? Thou rememberst since once I sat upon a promontory and heard a mermaid on a dolphin's back uttering such dulcet and harmonious breath that the rude sea grew civil at her song, and certain stars shot madly from their spheres to hear the sea maid's music. And this is where the poetry starts getting laid on pretty thick. It's an incredibly vivid image. So you remember since once, in other words, you remember when this one time I sat upon a promontory, which is like a high piece of land that juts out over the water, and heard a mermaid on a dolphin's back, though why mermaids can't swim on their own, I don't know, uttering such dulcet and harmonious breath. Dulcet means pleasant or sweet sounding, and harmonious breath. Breath isn't just breathing, it means voice or song. But it was so dulcet and harmonious that the rude sea, not rude like talking with its mouthful, but rude like harsh or stormy sea, it grew civil at her song. 
so the sea was really choppy and immediately it calmed down when it heard her song and not only that certain stars shot madly from their spheres remember that idea about the stars and planets being embedded in these crystal spheres around the earth well certain stars shot madly shot wildly crazily out of these spheres to hear the sea maid's music that was how amazing the song was that they broke out of their spheres and puck ever the good soldier finishes his line i remember well funny coincidence that very time i saw but thou couldst not flying between the cold moon and the earth cupid all armed so I saw it, even though you, Puck, couldn't see it. Cupid, all armed. All means totally here. Like armed to the teeth. And what was he doing? He was flying between the cold moon and the earth. Not cold as in temperature, but cold as in pale and probably also virginal. So Cupid is flying between the moon and the earth. And what does he do? A certain aim he took at a fair vestal throned by the west and loosed his love shaft smartly from his bow as it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. So certain here means accurate, like a pinpoint aim he takes at a fair vestal. A vestal is a woman who takes a vow of chastity, especially someone who serves the goddess Vesta. So it's almost like a nun, but this isn't any vestal. She's throned by the West. Throned means on a throne or named the queen. And where? In the West. And they're supposed to be in Greece right now. So where's the West? Well, it's England. And this is one of the few even slightly direct references to Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare's plays. Because remember, she was set up as the Virgin Queen, whether she actually was or not. And this is very similar to how Spencer uses her in The Fairy Queen. So Cupid has his sights on Queen Elizabeth. And what did he do? He loosed his love shaft smartly from his bow. Loosed means fired or shot. His love shaft. Well, okay, stop giggling. It just means it's an arrow that causes love. But also, you know, love shaft. And he looses it smartly from his bow. Smartly means swiftly. But there's also some indication that it's supposed to smart, as in it should intend harm or pain. You also get that very ripe double L sound of loosed his love shaft. It's all very sexual. And how did he shoot it? As it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. As if it was shot hard enough to pierce through a hundred thousand hearts, not just the one it needed to. So it sounds like the queen is in trouble here. But good news, but I might see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon, and the imperial votress pass it on in maiden meditation, fancy free. But I might, in other words, but I could see, unlike you, young Cupid, remember he's a boy, his fiery shaft, no comment, quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon. There's that moon imagery again. So quenched means extinguished. So the fire of his arrow of love was quenched in the chaste beams, chaste meaning virginal, literally, but also pale, of the watery moon. Why watery? Well, it controlled water, as in the tides. But here you have a direct opposition of hot fire versus cold water, and cold water always wins. It's as though the queen's chastity wins out even against the hot love of Cupid. So some of this is what I was talking about earlier, which is this virgin cult of the queen against the sexy times of the pagan gods. And the imperial votress, imperial meaning like an empress, and the votress, the woman who took this vow of chastity, probably to the goddess of the moon, she passed on unharmed, in maiden meditation. Meditation not like transcendental, but just thinking. And what kind of thinking? Maiden, in other words, virginal or chaste thinking. And she was fancy free, free from thoughts and specifically the thoughts of love. So she can just continue thinking about innocent stuff, never worrying about thoughts of love. We actually have that expression fancy free today, but I think we use it in a very different way. And of course you can see the alliteration of maiden meditation and fancy free. So now we've had sort of two unrelated stories. Let's get to the point. Here it is. Yet marked I where the bolt of Cupid fell. Oh, this is interesting. I marked, in other words, I noticed or paid attention to where the bolt, where the arrow of Cupid fell to earth. It fell upon a little western flower, before milk white, now purple with love's wound. And maidens call it love in idleness. I'm sorry, that is hot as hell. 
So it fell on this little flower in the West, probably in England, which used to be as white as milk, but now it's purple with the wound of love. That's almost the perfect metaphor for this play, love as a wound. But it's as though the flower is bleeding and it's turned purple because it was struck by love. And maidens, in other words, young girls or virgins, call it love in idleness. This is another name for the flower that's called the pansy, which comes from the French word pansé, which means thoughts. You actually have Ophelia in Hamlet giving someone a pansy and saying, that's for thoughts. And idleness might be the kind of idle thoughts you have when you're just hanging around. Or idleness may also be something of a sexual nature. So now we know this flower exists, and here comes the instruction. He says, fetch me that flower, the herb I showed thee once. Herb can just refer to any plant, but there's that alliteration of fetch and flower. Oh, apparently he showed Puck this plant before. He could have mentioned that earlier. And here's the kicker. The juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid will make or man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. Oh, this is interesting. So when someone's asleep and you lay the juice of this flower on their eyelids, it'll make or man or woman, in other words, either man or woman, madly dote, which is to say fall in love crazily, like be obsessed, just as those stars shot madly from their spheres earlier. Now these people are going to dote upon the next live creature that it sees. So you can't fall in love with an eggplant but you'll fall in love with any person or animal that you see. Though the eggplant play would be hilarious, Shakespeare, consider that for the sequel, please. Notice the really important thing here is that this is a magic trick that works through the eyes. There's that eye imagery again, but love enters in at the eyes. So fetch me this herb and be thou here again, ere the Leviathan can swim a league. So get the plant for me and be back here, be here again, ere the Leviathan, before. The Leviathan is like a giant sea creature mentioned in the Bible. It might also just refer to a whale here, but be back before it can swim a league. And a league is a pretty short distance. It's three nautical miles. So he has to be back here very, very soon. But good news, Robin says, I'll put a girdle round about the earth in 40 minutes. A girdle is literally a belt. So it's something that goes all around the earth. So he's saying that he's so fast that he can go all around the earth in only 40 minutes which if you're calculating at home is 37,000 miles an hour that is flying puck speed and off he zooms and then Oberon has a little mini soliloquy with the audience he says having once this juice I'll watch Titania when she is asleep and drop the liquor of it in her eyes so having once in other words once I have this juice I'll watch Titania when she is asleep creepy and drop the liquor not like whiskey but like the juice or the essence of that flower into her eyes so just in case you didn't get the description from before here's the literal plan the next thing then she waking looks upon be it on lion bear or wolf or bull on meddling monkey or on busy ape she shall pursue it with the soul of love. So when she wakes up, the next thing she looks upon, whether it's a lion or a bear or a wolf or a bull or a monkey or an ape, all animals for some reason, that's his idea of tormenting her. And why is the ape busy? It's busy as in busybody, like nosy. You also get the fun alliteration of meddling monkey. So whatever animal it turns out that she sees, she shall pursue it with the soul of love. It's a beautiful phrase, but think about the literal image of it. A soul is something that gives life or it's the life force. So the very essence of love, that's how much she's going to want it. And ere I take this charm from off her sight, as I can take it with another herb, I'll make her render up her page to me. So ere before I take this charm, in other words, this spell off of her sight. Notice he doesn't say I and he doesn't say her. He says from her sight that he's specifically charming her sight as I can take it with another herb. In other words, there's another plant that will take off this spell. This is a parenthetical that is almost entirely exposition. You know, this is going to be important later. So just know that I can take it off later if I need to in the plot. So before he takes that spell off of her, he's going to make her render up. In other words, give over her page to me, her little attendant boy. That is some dirty tricks, yo. Sounds like a good, if extremely creepy, plan. But who comes here? 
Oh, so we have a new character entering this scene. That is unexpected, but that's okay. He says, I am invisible and I will overhear their conference. This is such simple stage magic. How do you do fairy magic on stage? You have a guy say, I'm invisible. And then for the rest of the scene, he's invisible. He doesn't have to wear an invisibility cloak or anything. So he's going to overhear. He's going to listen to their conference. In other words, their discussion or their conversation. And this is really important because this is the first time that they cross the streams in this play. You have characters from one plot line interacting in some way with characters from a totally different plot line. And that's going to be the bulk of the rest of the play. But this is the first time this happens. And who is it? It's Demetrius, who we obviously know is going to come looking for Lysander and Hermia. And then sort of unexpectedly... Helena, who has apparently followed him there. And he is not pleased about this. He says, I love thee not, therefore pursue me not. So there's that cool parallel structure. I don't love you, so don't pursue me. Where is Lysander and fair Hermia? So now we know why he's here. He's looking for them. The one I'll stay, the other stayeth me. I've seen some productions and texts change this to slay, as in kill. But stay means delay or even detain. So one of them is delaying him, and the other one he'll delay. Presumably Lysander, by taking her out, is delaying Demetrius's wedding to her. And the one he's going to stay, delay or detain, is probably Hermia. He's going to bring her back. But if you think it's Slay, then what he means is he's going to kill Lysander. And Hermia kills him, either with not loving him or running away from him. And then he turns on her. He says, Thou toldst me they were stolen into this wood. And here am I, and wood within this wood, because I cannot meet my Hermia. So you told me they had stolen out into the woods. In other words, secretly escaped out here. And here am I, I'm here, and wood within this wood. It's a pun, not one that makes any sense now. Wood means like wildly furious. Now that he's in the woods, why? Because he can't meet his Hermia. He can't find her. And he's pretty sick of her. He says, hence, get thee gone and follow me no more. So hence, get away from here. Get thee gone. Get out of here. Follow me no more. Stop following me. It's that same thing as pursue me not in the first line. But she's helpless. She says, you draw me, you hard-hearted adamant. So she says she's not following him. He's drawing her, almost like a magnet. And she calls him a hard-hearted adamant. Adamant is this legendary rock that's famously hard, like his heart, because it's so dense, but it's also magnetic. And as you can see from part of the word, it comes from the Latin word for to love deeply, maybe because of the magnetic thing. So it's as though he's drawing her along with his nature. By the way, look at their pronouns for a second. He says thee and thou to her, and she says you to him. Now you'll sometimes see this with men and women, because men were, at the time, unfortunately, superior to women socially. So there's something a little formal about the way she talks to him, but there's also kind of a respect versus disrespect thing here. He calls her thou because he doesn't respect her, and she calls him you because she respects him that much. And she goes on, but yet you draw not iron, for my heart is true as steel. So she continues this drawing metaphor. So a magnet attracts iron, but she says she's not iron. In other words, she isn't hard-hearted. There's sort of a pun on the magnetism thing, but also violence, like an iron weapon. And why is she not iron? Because she's true as steel. True means loyal or reliable, but in the context of weapons, it means straight and well-made. And steel is the best material for swords. And also at the time, it was relatively rare and expensive to make. And this is why there was a common expression of true as steel. So she's more than just iron that's attracted by his magnet. She's as reliable as steel is. And she says, leave you your power to draw and I shall have no power to follow you. So leave you, if you'll stop or if you'll give up your power to draw to attract, then I'll have no power to follow you. You're the one that's doing this to me. And Demetrius is pretty much at the end of his rope now. He says, do I entice you? Like, am I drawing you or ensnaring you or even provoking you in any way? Do I speak you fair? Do I say nice or kind things to you? Or rather, do I not in plainest truth tell you I do not, nor I cannot, love you? 
So does it sound like I'm being nice to you, that I'm doing anything that would draw you? Actually, instead, aren't I saying in the plainest truth, the most honest, simple truth, that I don't love you and I can't love you, ever? And she picks on that love you at the end and says, and even for that, do I love you the more? You get the sense that even she knows how pathetic this is. So even because of the fact that he doesn't love her, she loves him more. She says, I am your spaniel, and Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. A spaniel is a loyal dog, and specifically what it was used for is that hunters used it to flush out and retrieve game after they shot it. So it's a working dog who goes out and flushes out the game, in this case Lysander and Hermia, and then tries to bring it back to her master. Ugh. And here's the worst part, it gets better. The more you beat me, the more I will fawn on you. And fawn literally comes from dogs. It's like when a dog rubs its head on you to show its loyalty. So the more you beat me like someone would beat a bad dog, the more loyal I am to you. Use me but as your spaniel. Spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me. Only give me leave, unworthy as I am, to follow you. So just use me like you'd use your dog. Spurn me, which literally means kick me, strike me, hit me, neglect me, lose me, which can mean like forget or throw away. So you can do whatever awful thing you want to me. Only give me leave, in other words, give me permission, unworthy as I am, to follow you. So I know I'm totally unworthy of your love, but just let me follow you around. Is that okay? Oh man, Helena, I know where you're coming from, lady. I think it's sometime in our life we have all done something pathetic and terrible for love. Or said something totally demeaning to ourselves in the hope that it would make the person who doesn't love us, love us. And she concludes, What worser place can I beg in your love, and yet a place of high respect with me, than to be used as you use your dog? So I can beg, in other words, I can ask or request nothing worse in your love and your respect for me than to be used like you use your dog. And she says, but it's okay because that's a place of high respect with me. To be used as your dog would be awesome for me, even though it's nothing. It's the worst thing you can do to me. And Demetrius is done. He says, tempt not too much the hatred of my spirit, for I am sick when I do look on thee. So he hates her with his whole soul. And he's saying not to tempt him too much with that, because he literally feels sick when he looks at her. And then she turns his words right around on him. This is the sort of thing that would be wit if it wasn't so pathetic. She says, and I am sick when I look not on you. Like I feel sick when I'm not looking at you. And he cannot get rid of this girl. He says, you do impeach your modesty too much to leave the city and commit yourself into the hands of one that loves you not, to trust the opportunity of night and the ill counsel of a desert place with the rich worth of your virginity. Now he's actively insulting her. He says, you impeach your modesty. In other words, you discredit or call into question your modesty, your virtue, especially your chastity, to leave the city and commit yourself into the hands of one that loves you not. So this really reflects badly on her, that she's giving over herself to someone that hates her. And on top of that, to trust the opportunity of night and the ill counsel of a desert place. So it's a bad move on her part to trust the opportunity of night. In other words, the opportunities that night gives to other people to hurt her and the ill counsel of a desert place. Desert not as in sand, but just meaning deserted where there's no people around. And I like that phrase, the ill counsel, that it's giving her bad advice. So he's saying she's made a mistake to trust it with the rich worth of her virginity. And rich as in literally value, because their virginity was the only object of worth that young women in this time owned. So she could get a bad reputation, she could get hurt, she could get raped. This is a very rapey, weird speech. He's almost implying that he might do something wrong, since she's alone out here and desperate. Ugh. But it's okay, she says, your virtue is my privilege. So his virtue, the fact that he's too virtuous to attack her, is her privilege. And privilege can mean like a sanctuary or an asylum. Like his virtue is what's going to protect her from attack. It might even mean something here more like license. Her license to go out of the city without fear. And she continues, For that it is not night when I do see your face, therefore I think I am not in the night. So he warned her about going out at night, and she says, For that, because it isn't nighttime when I see your face because it's so bright to her. Therefore, I think I am not in the night. 
nor doth this wood lack worlds of company for you in my respect are all the world and he said it was a desert place but she says this wood isn't lacking worlds of company like worlds full of people to accompany her why because he in her respect in other words in her regard or estimation is the whole world he's all the people she needs and see also all those w sounds wood and worlds then how can it be said i am alone when all the world is here to look on me there's all these seeing and looking images in here so she says i can't be alone because him in other words her entire world is looking at her here and he is actively freaked out now he says i'll run from thee and hide me in the brakes and leave thee to the mercy of wild beasts so you like looking on me huh well i'm going to run away from you and hide me in the brakes brakes are like bushes or thickets and i'll leave you to the mercy of wild beasts you stay out here with the animals where they can attack you and she picks up on that word wild and says the wildest hath not such a heart as you so even the wildest animal doesn't hate her as much as he does and all she can say is run when you will in other words run whenever you want the story shall be changed apollo flies and daphne holds the chase so the story the famous myth is going to be changed this may be another reference to ovid's metamorphoses i told you that guy to be back so apollo who was this very powerful god gets hit by one of cupid's arrows because nobody's beyond that guy and he falls in love with this water nymph named daphne and he chases her and in order to escape him she's turned into a laurel tree as in bay leaves so that's one of the metamorphoses in metamorphoses is the way she changes so apollo flies in other words he runs away and daphne holds the chase she's the one who keeps or maintains the chase after him so instead of the usual apollo chasing daphne what's going to happen now is that daphne's going to chase apollo just like helena is chasing demetrius it's supposed to be the other way around the woman is supposed to be chased by the man and here's another example the dove pursues the griffin the griffin is another mythological creature it's half lion and half eagle so you have this peaceful bird chasing after this fearsome one and another example the mild hind makes speed to catch the tiger hind is another word for a female deer and mild just means calm or peaceful but this one makes speed to catch the tiger and the tiger then as now was known as the most ferocious animal so it's topsy-turvy now the deer is chasing after the tiger everything is backwards now and she says bootless speed when cowardice pursues and valor flies so even though the deer which in this case is her makes speed to catch the tiger in other words demetrius now actually that speed is bootless it's pointless or useless when cowardice pursues in other words a mild cowardly person chases after and valor a brave person flies runs away or flees like even she realizes how ridiculous this looks and demetrius is out he says i will not stay thy questions in other words i won't wait for your questions let me go or if thou follow me do not believe but i shall do thee mischief in the wood so if you do choose to keep following me do not believe but in other words don't believe anything except that i'm going to do mischief in other words i'm going to do harm or injury or some wicked action to you in these woods and she picks up on that cue of mischief in the wood and she says i in the temple in the town the field you do me mischief remember they used to be engaged and he broke it off which is a great shame to her so actually the temple knows about it the town athens knows all about it the field he's already done her mischief all over the place he's hurt her in every way possible and she says phi demetrius phi is just this sort of short expression of outrage you can hear it in the sound of the word phi your wrongs do set a scandal on my sex scandal as in literally disgrace but not just her on her whole sex so the wrongs the awful things he's done to her disgrace all women because she's forced to chase him like this in a very unmaidenly way you see also those hard s sounds of set and scandal and sex we cannot fight for love as men may do we should be wooed and we're not made to woo she wants him to treat her like every other man treats every other woman why does it have to be backwards like this notice by the way that rhyme is back it's been a little while since we saw that guy it's almost like a rhyming couplet that sends him off because then he exits the scene running away from her so he's rejected her pretty decisively but she is undaunted she says i'll follow thee and make a heaven of hell to die upon the hand i love so well 
Where have we heard this phrase before about heaven and hell? Hermia used it earlier in the play, but she used it the other way around. She said, he hath turned the heaven into a hell. And now Helena is going to try to take this hell of the way he treats her and turn it into a heaven. How? By dying upon the hand I love so well, as though she wants him to kill her like he threatened to. It's a little extreme. Really, you're going to die at his hand? And remember, though it's hard to tell from the language, Oberon has been watching this the whole time. Of course, he's been invisible, in quotes. But Helena has this little rhyming couplet at the end, and she leaves to pursue Demetrius. And Oberon becomes visible again, and he says, Fare thee well, nymph. Fare thee well as in goodbye to you, but also I hope things go well for you. And he calls her nymph. Maybe it's a reference to that Daphne character again, but it can refer to any beautiful young woman. Hamlet calls Ophelia that. But then he has a plan. Ere he do leave this grove, thou shalt fly him, and he shall seek thy love. So now he's really starting to twist these plot strands together. Ere he do leave this grove, before he leaves these woods, thou shalt fly him. You're going to run away from him, and he's going to be the one to try to get your love. So the tables are going to be really turned now. Because remember, in a second, he's going to have a way to make people fall in love with each other through this flower. And as if on cue, literally, back comes Puck, and Oberon sees him and says, Hast thou the flower there? Welcome, Wanderer. I think this is the third or fourth time that Puck has been called a Wanderer. It's actually like his most defining characteristic. He's been wandering all around the world, and now he's back. So does he have the flower? And Puck says, Aye, there it is. And Oberon cuts off his line and finishes it. I pray thee, give it me. In other words, I ask you, give it to me. And he hands over the flower. And then we get a very beautiful and very famous speech. And this is one of those times when you hear Shakespeare, who's probably about 30 when he writes this speech, just coming into his powers, showing off what a good poet he is. It's almost such a show-off piece that you forget you're in a play for a second. And it reads a little bit like a poetry recitation. So Oberon takes the flower and he looks at it and he says to Puck, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses, and with eglantine. So this is literally flowery language. So he knows a bank, like a grassy place, where the wild thyme blows. Wild thyme is like a purple flower and herb, and it blows. It doesn't mean it's blown by the wind. It means it blossoms or it blooms. Where oxlips, which are like these yellow flowers, and the nodding violet grows. Nodding violet is a kind of purple flower. And what else about this bank? It's quite over-canopied. In other words, a canopy of flowers and other plants has grown over it. Not the sense of there being too much, but in the sense of it being literally over that bank. So it's completely over-canopied with luscious woodbine. And woodbine either refers to the honeysuckle vine or another vine that climbs around honeysuckle and sort of twinned to it. But the luscious woodbine is very sexual. And what else is it over-canopied with? With sweet musk roses. Musk roses are a strong-smelling rose, and sweet literally means sweet-smelling and also with eglantine, which is another strong-smelling big pink flower. And why do we care about this bank and all the flowers? Well, because there sleeps Titania some time of the night, lulled in these flowers with dances and delight. And you see the hard stress at the beginning of that first syllable, there. We've sort of been hypnotized with all that beautiful flower talk, and now he hits us with that there, because there's actual information. There Titania sleeps some time of the night, for part of the night, lulled in these flowers, which can mean reclining or lounging back in those flowers, but also maybe sleeping in those flowers, with dances and delight. So as she's lying back there, her fairies are dancing and delighting around her. It's also such poetic language that you get those double D sounds of dances and delight. And there the snake throws her enameled skin, weed wide enough to wrap a fairy in. It's a little bit of a digression there, but a really interesting one. In that same place, the snake throws her enameled skin. In other words, sheds or casts off its skin, which he describes as enameled, which means bright or multicolored. It's literally the process of covering in colorful glass, but it's a beautiful way to describe a snake skin. 
and that skin is weed wide enough to wrap a fairy in. Weed is a piece of clothing, and the skin is big enough that you can wrap a fairy in it. Or rather, fairies are small enough that you can wrap them in snakeskin. And you know how poetic he's being because the sound of this is really important. Not just the double W's of weed and wide, but also the way in which the words sound similar. Weed, wide. And here's the good stuff. And with the juice of this, I'll streak her eyes and make her full of hateful fantasies. So I'll take the juice of this flower and I'll streak her eyes with it. It's a great verb, streak. And he's going to make her full of hateful fantasies. Fantasies we've gone through before, it's those imaginings, but it may also be related to that word fancies, as in the thing you fall in love with. But what are they? He uses the adjective hateful, as in repulsive. So usually fantasies or fancies are beautiful, but these ones are hateful. It's almost like an oxymoron. And then he remembers Helena and Demetrius and says, Take thou some of it and seek through this grove. A sweet Athenian lady is in love with a disdainful youth. So somewhere else in this woods, this nice lady from Athens is in love with a disdainful youth. Disdainful meaning contemptuous, like he doesn't want her love. So Puck is given the instructions to find the lady from Athens and this young guy. Anoint his eyes, but do it when the next thing he espies may be the lady. So anoint is a word you usually use when you're making a king the king. You put oil on his head, that's anointing. But here it just means smear or rub his eyes. But make sure you do it when the next thing he espies, in other words, the next thing he sees or looks at, may be the lady. Again, here's all the stuff about eyes and looking. So make sure he's looking at the right person. We don't want him falling in love with that bear or wolf or bull or eggplant or whatever. And he adds, Thou shalt know the man by the Athenian garments he hath on. So they're both from Athens. So you're going to be able to know him by his clothes. And he says, Effected with some care, that he may prove more fond on her than she upon her love. So effect it, carry it out, with some care. Like, be really careful about this in order that he may prove that he may turn out to be more fond on her, more passionately devoted to her, more even in love with her than she upon her love, than she upon the person that she's in love with. In other words, him. So like he said before, he's going to make Demetrius fall even more in love with her than she is in love with him. And one last instruction. And look thou meet me ere the first cock crow. Look thou, make sure that you meet me ere before the first cock crow, the first rooster crows. This is important, and we'll see this later. These are creatures of the night. So as soon as the sun comes up, as soon as that first rooster crows, they have to get out of there. They're a little vampire-y in a way. And Puck, Robin Goodfellow, says back to him, Fear not, my lord. In other words, don't worry. Your servant shall do so. I'll do exactly what you told me to do. But will he? Well, that's where the fun parts come from. As we'll see in part three, Puck is maybe not wonderful at following directions. But that's where the interest of the play is going to come from. Otherwise, it would be an hour-long play. So that's the end of part two. If you enjoy this, I hope you'll take the time to go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to make this podcast possible. I really appreciate it. Bye.